Welcome to the Room Madness Podcast. This is the podcast for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology. My name is David Leverance, and I'm a rheumatologist specializing in medical education, quality improvement, corny jokes, and sharing my over-exuberant enthusiasm about rheumatology with others. I'm so glad you're here. In this episode, we're going to discuss IgG4-related disease. This is a really interesting systemic autoimmune condition that's been around for a long time, but was not recognized or well-described until recently. In particular, we're going to discuss the new IgG4-related disease classification criteria published in Arthritis and Rheumatology in January by Zachary Wallace et al. Now, if you have read any classification criteria papers in the past, you may be tempted to turn off this episode because you know that these papers can be pretty dry. However, hopefully in our discussion today, you'll learn how this classification criteria paper provides some unique insights into what this disease actually is, and perhaps more importantly, what it isn't. So joining me for this discussion is Dr. Aki Udupa and Dr. Ellen Witt. Would you two introduce yourselves by telling us who you are and what stage of training you're in and how you got roped into doing this podcast with me? (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Leverins. Hi, everyone. My name is Aki Udupa, and I'm one of the second-year rheumatology fellows here at Duke. Once I started learning about topics that I really enjoyed at the start of fellowship, I realized how much fun it was to educate others about those topics. I also have had either a true crime podcast or a medical education podcast playing at all hours of the day since medical school. So it's really amazing to be here on a podcast myself. Great. Well, I'm so glad you're here. You are a great teacher. So I'm looking forward to what you have to teach us about this paper. Um, And Dr. Witt, Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Alan Witt. I'm a third year resident in internal medicine at Duke. And I got roped into this, I guess you could say, I, I thinking back, I remember being on uh, general medicine rotation and emailing Dr. Leverins about uh, ways to get involved in rheumatology. Uh, I, my my um, interest in rheumatology was just budding at that time. And uh, Dr. Leverins uh, told me about something called room madness, and I'd, I'd heard of um, neph madness, and so that rang rang a bell with me. And uh, the next thing you know, here I am and recording a podcast. So it's really exciting to be here. Great. Well, we're happy you're here as well. Thanks for jumping into this with us. Before we dig into our main topic for today. Uh, let's start with some brief, what we are calling reminders about the previous episode. Uh, in future episodes, these reminders are actually going to cover the main learning points from the previous episode. However, this is actually only the second episode of this podcast series. And the first podcast is just an introduction to this podcast and the Room Madness Tournament. It's really short, so I would encourage you all to take a listen. But in brief, this podcast series is a part of an educational initiative called Room Madness, that's going to culminate in the spring with a March Madness-style tournament of rheumatology concepts competing against each other to be crowned the most important rheumatology concept of the year. Who knows, maybe the IgG4-related disease classification criteria will win the tournament. We'll see. If you're a rheumatology trainee at any level, fellow, resident, medical student, nurse practitioner, or PA trainee, or any other health professions trainee with an interest in rheumatology, I would encourage you to join the Room Madness Facebook group to learn more. All right, back to IgG4-related disease. 
We are going to start with a brief primer about IgG4-related disease before we dig into this paper. So uh, Drs. Udupa and Dr. Witt, I'm going to talk for a little bit, but you guys feel free to jump in with questions or um, uh, thoughts about what I'm saying. Um, my hope is that this is going to be a general overview that's applicable to everyone to get everybody on the same page. So what is IgG4-related disease? Uh, it's surprisingly hard to come up with a concise definition of what it is, and probably the best way to understand what this disease is is to understand what it looks like under a microscope. So no matter what organ is involved by this condition, a biopsy of that organ is going to show some of the following features. Number one, a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate with lots of plasma cells staining positive for IgG4. So I'm going to break that down briefly. What is a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate? Uh, I don't know if either one of you want to answer this question, but when I first heard that, uh, I, I kind of thought that this was a unique kind of cell uh, that called a lymphoplasmacyte. Did either of you think that, or am I the only one? It makes sense. Yeah. Logically. I, <laughs> I think I think I might have been the only one, but this is how my brain works. It, it turns out it's not. It's not that. It's not that there's one cell called a lymphoplasmacyte infiltrating the tissue. And in, a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate essentially means a bunch of lymphocytes, plasma cells, and some cells that look like both of those jumbled together. Once you understand that this is a basic descriptor of the infiltrate, it's, under, it's easy to understand that lymphoplasmacytic infiltrates are certainly not unique to IgG4-related disease, and we can be seen in a variety of hematologic malignancies, viral infections, and other autoimmune conditions. The histologic finding in this infiltrate that raises suspicion for IgG4-related disease in particular, then, is when the plasma cells in this infiltrate have a lot of IgG4 in them. Now, as you know, there are many subclasses of human immunoglobulin G antibodies, and each subclass has several different roles and jobs, and we actually aren't too sure what IgG4 does. Most people with complete IgG4 deficiency are actually pretty normal. But for some reason that we don't completely understand, plasma cells in IgG4-related disease make a lot of this particular IgG subclass. And at present, it's not actually even felt that these IgG4 antibodies are even the root cause of the problem in IgG4-related disease, but are actually just a downstream effect of an underlying problem in the immune system. Most likely, with some interesting and unique T-cell populations called CD4 cytotoxic T-cells and T-follicular helper cells. Uh, we're not going to go too much further into that uh, because a full discussion of the pathogenesis of IgG4-related disease is a little beyond the scope of our podcast today. But to recap, the biopsy of an organ affected by IgG4-related disease is likely going to show a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate, meaning a bunch of lymphocytes and plasma cells, with lots of plasma cells staining positive for the specific IgG subclass called IgG4, which itself is not well understood. So, uh, before I go on, quick learner check-in. How are you all doing out there, Dr. Zidupa and Dr. Zwit? Is this making sense so far? Oh, yeah. Yep. Excellent. Lymphoplasma site is not an actual cell. <laughs> yes. That's the pearl. Yeah, there are plasmacytoid lymphocytes and uh, lymphoid plasmacytes. Uh, but yes, lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate, it's just all jumbled together. 
So, you know, I mentioned that uh, we're not going to go too much into the pathogenesis, but I did mention that some of the theorized cells that are abnormal in this disease are these cytotoxic CD4 positive T cells. Now, thinking back to basic immunology, we tend to think of cytotoxic T cells as CD8 positive. So these are weird. Um, And one thing that I can tell you that these cytotoxic CD4 positive T cells do is they secrete some pro-fibrotic molecules like TGF-beta. And this is important because another key characteristic of IgG4-related disease that you see under the microscope is storyform fibrosis, which is a particular whirling pattern of fibrotic material. And sometimes this inflammatory infiltrate and this fibrotic material actually obliterates veins, which is called obliterative phlebitis. So getting back to what IgG4-related disease, it's a disease characterized by a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate, lots of IgG4-positive plasma cells, storyform fibrosis, and obliterative phlebitis. You open any textbook about IgG4-related disease, that's what it's going to tell you. Um, What are some of the major clinical manifestations of IgG4-related disease? Um, In general, this disease leads to tissue enlargement, inflammation, and fibrosis wherever it shows up. It's probably best known for causing problems with the pancreas and the hepatobiliary system. And in fact, this disease was really first recognized when serum IgG4 levels were found to be useful in recognizing a specific type of autoimmune pancreatitis known as type 1 or sclerosing pancreatitis which is characterized on imaging as diffuse pancreatic enlargement, often like a sausage. Um, But IgG4-related disease can also cause sclerosing cholangitis, aortitis, retroperitoneal fibrosis, enlargement of the salivary and lacrimally glands, orbital pseudotumors, thyroid disease, tubular interstitial nephritis, uh, and so on. In a way, this disease is is basically a lot like sarcoidosis. It can show up pretty much wherever it wants, and it's a great mimic of many other conditions. Now, to set up our discussion about the new classification criteria for IgG4-related disease, I should point out that a few, there are a few critical challenges in making this diagnosis. First, I've already mentioned that the lymphoplasmacytic infiltrates are not unique to IgG4-related disease, and turns out even having a high amount of IgG4 in tissue or the bloodstream is not unique to this condition and can be seen in a variety of other conditions like Castleman's disease, sarcoidosis, other autoimmune diseases, infections, cancers, essentially all the same things that are basically always in the rheumatologic differential diagnosis. Um, Testing IgG4 levels in the blood is particularly problematic. There's lots of things that cause elevated serum IgG4 levels, And many patients with true IgG4-related disease have normal serum IgG4 levels. So all of this highlights the very real challenges that clinicians and researchers trying to study this disease face when they're trying to decide if someone has IgG4-related disease. So there's a brief primer to get everybody on the same page. And now we're going to talk about the paper. So again, this is published in Arthritis and Rheumatology in January by Zachary Wallace et al., And uh, we are going to start by talking a little bit about the um, justification for doing this paper and the methods. Um, So, uh, Dr. Witt, could you tell me a little bit about what you learned about how uh, and why they made this paper? Yes, I can. Thanks, Dr. Levens. First of all, let me just, I guess, begin by saying my uh, experience with IgG4 personally is relatively limited. Um, but I do distinctly remember being on rheumatology 
consult service as a jar and always being able to bank on if I include IgG4 in my differential that you could consider it because I can show up in so many different ways. Um, so uh, with that, I would like to just take you on a brief run through the methods for this paper. Um, and aside from not being an expert in IgG4, I'm also not an expert in methods for papers. So I, I've approached this um, from the perspective of uh, a resident who you know, is really appreciative of the ability to just look, take a deep dive into how some of these guidelines are created. Um, first of all, I, I think it's really important to know who made these criteria, where did they come from? Um, it was a combined effort between the American College of Rheumatology and the European League Against Rheumatism, ULAR. Members from these two organizations formed a steering committee, um, and that was uh, comprised of individuals from North America, Europe, Asia, and the steering committee invited physicians from a range of specialties, uh, rheumatologists, of course, but also pulmonologists, radiologists, uh, pathologists, and they made up advisory groups that focused on like four major domains. Um, and these four major domains are like nearly always involved in the diagnosis of IgG4RD. Um, they were radiologic, pathologic, serologic, and clinical. They also invited some other investigators to submit actual cases of IgGRD that they had seen, as well as actual cases that were mimickers of the disease. And so all three of these groups, led by the steering committee, were comprised of 86 physician scientists, and they are, to this day, affectionately known as the ACC-ULAR-IgG4RD Classification Criteria Working Group. And I can promise you that saying the name of the group five times really fast was not a criterion to be a member. I can promise you that this group effectively worked together to ultimately develop inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, and then validate these criteria using multiple cohorts uh, comprised of uh, 1,879 total patient cases. Um, 1086 were confirmed IgG4 and 793 mimickers. Um, so how did they do this? Um, the first step was to get the criteria or what they call item generation. Um, and the steering committee, the advisory groups, they went through over 100 rounds of consensus using evidence-based arguments to present potential ex exclusion criteria um, and inclusion criteria. Exclusion criteria were basically defined as if it would lead to the termination of consideration of IgG4 as a diagnosis. After all of the deliberation, they ended up with tons of exclusion and inclusion criteria. It was way more than could ever feasibly be used. They had like 78 total criteria, 51 exclusion and 27 inclusion. Um, when I read this, I mean, I, I kind of had uh, a flashback to intern year and like punching in items into MD calc before rounds. <laughs> There's no way I could ever get 78 items in, in there. Not, not feasible. So um, they needed to refine the list. And so in order to refine the list of criteria, they used a number of methods. Um, and then once they had a manageable number of criteria, they used cases also that had been submitted along with decision science theory based uh, decision science theory based adaptive software 
um, and basically that helped them assign relative weights to each of the inclusion criteria. Um, so once they had weighted criteria, um, all of these were preliminary criteria at the time, the idea was then to generate a threshold, like what score is going to, you know, test positive. Um, and their goal in doing this, it was based on a target of uh, over 90% specificity and over 80% sensitivity. Because um, as they state in the paper, the goal of these classification criteria is for use in clinical trials. And then finally, they were ready, once they had a threshold, they had weighted criteria, they were ready to finally validate these criteria. And they did two validation phases. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for that dive into the methods. I mean, it's an incredible description of what must have been an incredibly laborious process with massive meetings, tons of dis rounds of discussion, revising. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think overall, they used a lot of patients, experts from every field to go through a really well-described, really strenuous methodology. Dr. Udupa, uh, what would you like to tell us about what they ended up deciding about what is and what isn't IgG4-related disease? All right. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, let's get into these results. So uh, if you look at table three, it's basically breaking down the nearly 1,900 patients that were included in this study and then further subdivided them into a derivation cohort and the first validation cohort and the second validation cohort that was mentioned so nicely by Dr. Whip. You'll notice that most of these patients were men. They were in their 60s, so it's worth kind of knowing who your patient population is. Turns out that is the population we generally see IgG4-related disease in, as well as the mimickers of IgG4-related disease, so that makes sense. Um, the investigators really used the derivation cohort to make sure that they were on target with the inclusion and exclusion criteria. They decided that the criteria that didn't clearly distinguish the IgG4-related disease from a mimicker was tossed out, and those that really distinguished the mimicker from the IgG4-related disease were kept in. And that's how eventually they got to what's listed so nicely in table four. So that includes the entry criteria, the, in, uh, the exclusion criteria, and the inclusion criteria. So going into the entry criteria, they had to have uh, one uh, of two re possible requirements. So the first would be that the patient had to have some sort of characteristic clinical or radiologic involvement of a typical organ. Uh, in kind of the first part of the podcast, Dr. De uh, Leverens did mention many of these typical organs, so I won't get into that. But what characteristic means is that it usually involves some sort of abnormal enlargement of the, of the organ itself or a tumor-like mass, um, but also specifically could have included narrowing of the bile ducts, aortic wall thickenings, or a aneurysmal dilation, and thickening of the bronchovascular bundles. Uh, the other possibility of what it of what the patient could have to at least be entered into this criteria was that there could be some pathology showing some inflammation with a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate in one of these typical organs. Um, moving to the exclusion criteria, which is actually pretty helpful and pretty fascinating to apply in real life. You're right, the, ex the exclusion criteria are so interesting. And I feel like all of these experts came together and made this list for us of saying, you know what, if you've got these 
uh, fevers or cytopenias, or you give them a lot of steroids for four or so weeks and their lesions don't get better or they don't respond. Um, or, you know, if you see, you know, some of those pathologic findings in there, if you see primarily granulomatous inflammation, or if you see necrotizing vasculitis, those are not characteristic of IgG4 related disease. I find that really helpful. One point I thought was interesting in this paper is that this is the first classification criteria of any rheumatic disease that actually includes absolute exclusion criteria. It's the first and only. So by um, the investigators did mention that if they had not included the exclusion criteria, that the specificity would really drop by 10% and the sensitivity would only minimally improve. So it actually helps to keep it in. Um, yeah, I was a little confused by that until, until I realized that, yeah, what they're, what they're talking about there is other classification criteria have exclusion criteria, but it's like, you know, for Sjogren's, that classification criteria, you can't have um, hepatitis C or you can't have HIV because those are kind of confusing mimics sometimes of, of those conditions. But here it's not like you just, you can't have Castleman's or you can't have, you know, sarcoidosis. It's you can't have unexplained cytopenias, uh, you know, in multiple cell types because that's not a G4 related disease. And that's interesting. I, I never really considered, and now I'm kind of wondering why other classification criteria haven't done that. Exactly. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either. The inclusion criteria included histopathology, immunostaining, um, involvement of the major glands of the head and neck, chest, pancreas, biliary tree, kidney, and retroperitoneum. Um, I think it's always interesting to note which of these gets the most weight. Um, and of course, characteristic histopathology, we could have all predicted that. Um, IgG4-related IgG4 concentration above five times the normal, uh, two sets of head and neck glands involved, a paravertebral band-like soft tissue in the thorax, diffuse pancreatic enlargement, simultaneous pancreas and biliary tree involvement, and bilateral renal cortex low density areas, as well as um, soft tissue uh, masses around the aorta or the iliac arteries. So... Okay, so we're using all these criteria, these inclusion, exclusion, and then these um, different criteria, and, and we're count, counting up points. So what did they end up deciding uh, said you had IgG4-related disease or not? What was the score there? Yeah, so eventually the majority of the investigators agreed that a score of 20 or above was highly suggestive of IgG4-related disease. Um, as Dr. Witt had mentioned, the investigators really wanted a classification criteria with excellent specificity, and then they ended up achieving that at 99.2%, and they also wanted a good sensitivity, which ended up being about 85.5%. So 20 was the magic number. Another important point that the investigators had mentioned, I thought, is that the sensitivity of the classification criteria substantially decreased if you didn't have or include pathology data or serum IgG4 levels. Um, and they did mention this in the discussion as well, that you know, in clinical practice, we may not always have a biopsy and IgG4 uh, levels are elevated for other reasons. And so that 
really does reduce um, maybe the practical use of this classification criteria in certain situations, and there are limitations to its use. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they ran those. So yeah, they they calculate all these scores, and then they ran these sensitivity analysis saying, well, you know, could we still classify someone if they did if they didn't have IgG4 levels or if they just didn't have a biopsy? And yeah, the sensitivity uh, definitely did go down, although it was interesting that the specificity remained. Uh, and, and so it was interesting that for those cases that you still kind of had a handle on or had enough information about, you still could say based on radiology or other clinical features that, well, maybe this this patient really does have um, IgG4 related disease even without that. I think maybe one example would be someone with bilateral dacryoadenitis and, um, you know, a, a very characteristic finding of pancreatitis or a very characteristic finding of periaortitis. You know, you might actually be able to get to that score of 20 and be reasonably confident that you have a patient with IgG4 related disease. Um, yeah. What's interesting is that they did point out, I think in table six, that the majority of the false negatives in their groups um, in the first and second validation cohorts, they didn't have biopsies and therefore they didn't have enough inclusion criteria. So that makes you nervous about how many cases are being missed without that biopsy. Yeah. Well, so this is great. So, you know, yeah, I, I um, really want to hear from you guys um, knowing all this. Okay, so we've got this classification criteria. We feel pretty confident based on their methods that they've made a good set of criteria. And uh, we've got a little bit of a handle now on, okay, what is and what is an IgG4-related disease based on reviewing these inclusion and exclusion criteria. So why do y'all think this is important? We've touched on it a little bit, but um, why, do y'all, why do y'all think this is important for clinical practice and what implications does it have um, for our practice now and in the future? I, I think that, you know, going back to um, being on the consult service and sometimes like knowing that I could say IgG4 is a possibility here, it's, it speaks to like this being a disorder that affects people all over the the body um, in a wide range of, of ways. I think that it, having the criteria, having something that's been now validated provides a framework for an otherwise potentially um, not amorphous disease, but one that could, you could, you could really not be able to diagnose effectively because there's so many mimickers out there. I think just with how complex this disease is, even for rheumatologists, we need to have a unified uh, consensus on how we approach it and how we educate non-rheumatologists about what this disease is capable of and how to make sure you have the right diagnosis. So I think that having this number of cases and this number of investigators involved from around the world all coming to an agreement on a very kind of highly variable and complex disease is really just going to make all of us better doctors and provide better patient care. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, this is a really complicated, um, this is a really complicated disease. I, I think it's just so wonderful. You know, I, I mentioned at the beginning, classification criteria papers can seem pretty dry um, but I, I found this one 
so helpful to me as a, as a doctor. And I, I know that, I know that um, again, these are meant to be used to, to include patients in research studies and certainly want to recognize that. But um, you know, there are so many things that are in this classification criteria that you could probably find when you're digging through the literature about IgG4 related disease. What, like what are the actual characteristic findings when you're looking at the biliary tree on imaging in IgG4 related disease, but this paper spells it out in the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Like this is what it should look like. <laughs> and it's this nice, it's this nice digestible list. Um, and it's also, it also reflects kind of real world practice and it helps me think about how to make diagnoses in patients where things are not entirely clear or by the textbook. So, um, you know, for example, they mention in the discussion, I think of this paper that, you know, in the past, or maybe it's in the introduction, in the past, uh, we used to get big, big biopsies of uh, these tissues looking just to make sure that this isn't cancer. But now when we think it's IgG4 related disease, you know, they're getting smaller and smaller biopsies. And it's so common for us to see, well, there's a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate, not a lot of fibrosis, here's some IgG4, uh, but it's not meeting this threshold of 40% or whatever percentage you want to put in that specific organ tissue. You know, there's, there's certain cutoffs that you could use, like how much IgG4 should be in this, in this tissue specimen. And um, this paper really addresses that. I mean, in the discussion, they point out that um, 20% of cases, first of all, uh, that were classified in these validation cords as having IgG4-related disease had a normal serum IgG4 concentration. So that alone is really helpful to know. You know, about a, you know, a quarter or 20% of these, of these cases are IgG4 serum normal. Um, and then 9% of them didn't even have a biopsy and they were still able to be classified in this classification criteria. Um, 37% lacked the classic histopathologic findings. Like for example, they might not have had storyform fibrosis or obliterative phlebitis. And over 40%, and I think this is really helpful for me when I'm thinking about these pathology specimens and when I'm talking to pathologists about like, well, does this look like it or not? Over 40% of these pathology specimens did not meet the previously defined cutoffs for how many IgG4 positive plasma cells there needed to be. So that is so helpful for me that, okay, when things aren't lining up or not making sense, yeah, I know this is for research, but I can come back to this classification criteria, start adding up some points and thinking, okay, um, based on this study, am I getting even close to the diagnosis or not um, when things aren't lining up? Um, I find this really helpful, um, and I'm pretty excited that they published this. Um, any other thoughts from you guys? Um, so, yeah, I I would like to just like yeah. It used to be when I thought of IgG4 before before reading this that the first step and like the the soul of it almost was to get the IgG4 levels um, and then get the subtype. And if IgG4 is high, it was, it was something that I thought was almost of as a requirement and like just be, would, was very rare for that not to be elevated. But um, it, it's definitely not the case as, as shown here. And I think it was probably known before, but it was um, eye-opening for me in reading this. The other, the other thing too, like you were mentioning how, how, detailed and how well laid out the um these a lot of these criteria are um within within specific domains and i think that's that's one thing i take away from this that 
I really like how they had these advisory groups that were made up, like there was a multi-specialty approach to this. And I think that really allowed for a more, a more detailed um, explanation of these criteria, uh, just more detailed criteria within each of these domains, rather than, than just saying the name of a, a diagnosis or, or being very general, which makes it hard to apply clinically. Yeah, agree. Thank you, Dr. Witt. I, and it's so helpful to have the perspective of a resident who, you know, has not seen this very much, but has heard about it a lot. Um, and uh, we appreciate you sharing your insights uh, about this disease after reading this paper with us. Um, oh. Any any final thoughts, Dr. Udupa? I'm just so glad we did this. And I hope that everyone enjoys it, uh, listening to this as much as we loved making it. Great. Well, uh, I think that is actually going to be it for the podcast then. Um, thank you to Dr. Witt and Dr. Yudupa for joining me uh, on this second episode. I told them that uh, before we did this, I had really no idea what it was going to turn into, but I'm really excited because you guys did a wonderful job and I'm, uh, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, so, you know, if all of you out there enjoyed this podcast, um, please consider joining the Room Madness Facebook group. Um, just go to Facebook and search for Room Madness and request to join. Again, this is a, a, a Facebook group for rheumatology trainees of any type who are crazy about rheumatology. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts about what we should do for future episodes. Um, and if there's any trainees out there who are interested in medical education and would want to be on this podcast, please message me, email me. It's david.leverens, L-E-V as in Victor, E-R-E-N-Z as in Zebra at duke.edu. And uh, let me know of your interest. And um, we want all kinds of learners to be on here discussing um, really interesting rheumatology topics. So uh, that is it. Thank you guys and see you later.